So you just sat down. Stand up again for the reading of God's Word, please. This is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Let's pray. Good Lord, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to worship you and celebrate Jesus coming down over the last couple of days. God, I pray that as we transition from Christmas season into a new year, that we would seek you with a fresh, fresh desire. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I'm going to show you something from the book of Genesis. So, if you brought your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis is the book of beginnings. While you're busting out your Bible, I should tell you a little bit about who I am. I'm Trevor, Trevor Carpenter. Some of you know me. A few more may remember me from this last year's Good Friday service. I was one of the actors in Aaron's creative scheme. You might remember me yelling something like stone her or something like that. Uh, My wife, Deanna, and I, we've been coming here for about two and a half years. We uh, usually drag along our brood of four kids. Uh, If you've got young kids, uh, you may know my wife, Deanna. She works with them mostly in the preschool on Sunday, it's on Sunday mornings, um, and I spend most of my time these days getting paid to walk the tier at the county jail. So if you've been arrested in the past seven years, you may know me from there too. To everyone else, I'm new, so hi. If you don't know, Pastor Aaron and his wife are taking a trip to Italy right now. In fact, right now. So today, this very moment even, he may be getting groped by the TSA. We, <laughs> we got a lot to cover today, so hold on tight. Last week, Aaron briefly mentioned Jacob and how he pursued Rachel. This week, we're going to look a little bit deeper at a different part of Jacob's story. This is one night in the life of Jacob. It's really just a short story. We're going to start at, at uh, verse 22, so follow along with me if you've opened up. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up, excuse me, the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Now, prayer and spirituality, they're, they're actually quite popular in our culture today. The average person might not say that they're religious, they don't go to church most of the time, but they'd like to consider themselves as spiritual. It's very popular. They say, I like the idea of spiritual connection and spirituality, but I'm not interested in religion. I'm going to church. Let's take a look 
at this little story of a real spiritual encounter with God, Jacob's story. Now, almost immediately, you can see that the Bible's understanding of real spirituality is just a bit different than our modern ideas of real spirituality. Modern ideas of real spirituality seem to talk about being grounded. But when Jacob meets God, God immediately knocks him off his balance and literally grounds him. Modern ideas of spirituality are always after calm, peacefulness, and being grounded. And our story, when God meets Jacob, he smashes him to the ground and cripples him for life. And there's a difference here between modern ideas of spirituality and what the Bible says. This is such an interesting story to me. Let's take a look and ask the question, how do you know if you've actually had a spiritual connection with God? How do you know if you've had a real spiritual encounter with God? Not just believing in God, not just believing in some general way or following God's ethical standards in some way. How do you know if you've really had a true encounter with the real God? There are three things that we're going to learn from this story. If you're going to meet God, you have to meet Him alone. If you're going to meet God, you have to meet Him for blessing. And if you're going to meet God, you have to meet Him at the point of weakness. Let's go through that again. If you're going to meet God, you have to meet Him alone. If you're going to meet God, you have to meet Him for blessing. If you're going to meet God, you have to meet Him at the point of weakness. First of all, what do I mean by you have to meet Him alone? Back to Jacob. Jacob was the younger of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had cheated his brother Esau many years before, and Esau wanted to kill him. So Jacob had to flee for his life. He went to a far-off country. And in that country, Jacob prospered. He developed a huge family, and he developed a great amount of wealth. At that time, that would have been a lot of livestock, a lot of sheep, a lot of land, a lot of servants. Today, this would have been a dude that drives a Porsche. Uh, has a huge ranch, vacations in Hawaii, maybe Italy, I don't know. <laughs> no. Has uh, maybe uh, those giant TVs, the big LED ones that you see when you go into Costco, you know, but in like all ten of his bedrooms. At some point, Jacob had decided it was time to go home. So here we are watching him as he is returning home. On the way there, he gets word that his brother Esau is coming out to see him. Oh, and Esau's bringing about 400 men with him. Jacob realizes that this really means, more than likely, that Esau's coming to kill them all. But Jacob, Jacob's never without a plan. He's smart. He's shrewd. He's wise. He divides up his whole party, his entourage, his crew. He divides them into three parts. The first third, the livestock and the servants, he sends to Esau as a gift. And he sends with it this message. This is a gift to my lord Esau from your brother Jacob. Then he divides what's left into two parts. He figures if Esau attacks one of the remaining groups, he says, I can get away with the other, and I won't lose everything. Jacob's a pretty smart guy. So he sends all of his family, all of his wealth, into three directions. And then night falls, and he's alone. Right there in verse 24, read it again. And Jacob was left alone. It's in this place that he actually meets God. I want you to think with me for a second about one thing. Do you know anyone who was raised in the church? Maybe a church has been around for a while. Maybe that church is the same church that their parents were raised in. Oftentimes, folks are very fond of that church. 
Now they've moved away. But when they come back to town, they go to that church. They sit in that church and afterwards they say things like, it really means so much. I'm very inspired. However, when they go back home, they don't go to church. What's going on there? I mean, they're not, they're not, really, the, they're not really interested in Christianity. They just kind of like the experience of it. What's the deal? Well, they have faith. They would say, oh, I believe Christianity. I really do. Their faith is cultural. It never became personal. They never met God alone by themselves. You see that? They met him in their culture or in their family. This was in many ways my experience. Early on, my faith was my parents' faith. It was the faith of my family, the family that I was raised in. It was my cultural experience. It wasn't really personal. It became personal a few, many years later in, in my college years. It was then that I wrestled with God. It's not that my parents did anything wrong. They introduced me to Christianity, to God, to Jesus, but they couldn't force it. You can't force it on someone. It's got to be their own personal experience. Yet during those same college years, it was, I saw it happen for many others. What I mean is uh, some people, they get really involved in their Christian college or the the Christian ministry on campus, and everything is really engaging and exciting. It's emotional and wonderful. And then they move on from that experience, from that culture, and they can't find a church anywhere that's really that cool anymore or very hip, or the teaching isn't that exciting. So they just don't go. They don't do anything. And pretty soon, all that belief kind of feels unreal to them. It doesn't feel like it even ever really happened. Or maybe they just, maybe they feel like it was real, but they can't replicate it. What happened there? Well, they had faith, I guess, but it was emotional. It was social. Maybe it was psychological. It never got personal. It never penetrated them. They, they met God in a group, a group of maybe really hip people, but did they ever really meet him alone? Did it ever become personal? I had met God at home. I had met God in my family, the religion of those around me, in my family, and in my culture. It, but it overshadowed me. It hadn't penetrated me. I hadn't met God alone, personally. Have you met God alone, personally? You may be thinking, what's he talking about? Meeting God alone. Meeting God personally. Look, Jacob's alone. And then a man comes out of nowhere and jumps him. He interrupts. He intrudes there. It's right there that he knows he's meeting God personally. Has that happened to you? Has God interrupted you? Has he intruded on your personal life? Tim Keller, senior pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York. Um, they have about 5,000 people that go to, go to church there on Sunday each week. Keller admits that a large number of the people that come... They come week in and week out. They hear the sermons and they say, they say things like, this is wonderful, but they're not in any groups. They don't participate in the community's life. 70% of them are even single. I guess in a large anti-family kind of city like New York, you might find this. Keller says that because of this, they have this very interesting phenomenon. He likes to tell the story that repeats itself quite often. He says that at least once a month, he talks to a young woman who says she went out with a guy. This guy loves listening to Keller's sermons. He's pretty active, and he comes to church a lot. And he says things like, oh, I really love Redeemer. Then about halfway through the date, he wants to sleep with her. And the young woman goes on telling Dr. Keller, what do you say about this? He's going to your church, and he likes you, but he wants to sleep with me. 
Keller says, he actually gets this quite a lot. He tells young women like this, that guy might really love Christianity in a lot of ways, but it hasn't really become personal. Christianity hasn't intruded on their life. They haven't let it come in. They haven't let God perturb them, interrupt them, intrude, mess things up. They relate to God, but civilly, culturally, emotionally, and intellectually, but not personally. Have you met him alone? Have you met him alone? Have you met him personally? Has it gotten personal? You must meet him alone. Secondly, you must meet him for blessing. What do I mean by that? You must meet him for blessing. All right, back to the story, Jacob. Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older son. Jacob's the younger son. They had a father. His name was Isaac. And Isaac loved Esau best. He lauded on Esau. Esau got all of his attention. He honored Esau in public. He made it known that Esau was his favorite. And that hurt Jacob. That does hurt, you know. Few things are more painful than something like that. Have you ever watched one of your parents lavish a significantly greater amount of attention onto one of your siblings? Have you been on the receiving end of a crappy deal like that? I've known a few people who have experienced that kind of pain. Now, excuse me, Isaac was getting old. He knew it was coming to the end of his years, and he decided he was going to give Esau the birthright blessing. In ancient times, this was quite common. The oldest son, he would inherit the majority of the family estate. So Isaac wanted to bring Esau in, and in a formal way, say, you get the family estate. Then, then Isaac was to do this ritual blessing over him. He would bless him as the firstborn, as the heir. When Jacob heard about this, he realized, ah, here's my chance. You see, Isaac was basically blind. So before, es- before Esau could get in to see his father, Jacob dresses up as Esau. He pretends to be his older brother. He slips in and he gets his father, Isaac, to give him the blessing. Then he takes off. Then Esau comes in and he realizes what's happened. And now Isaac realizes what's happened. And now everyone knows what's happened. And of course, this is why Jacob flees for his life. Now you and I are sitting here, at least I know I'm sitting here thinking, as I'm reading the story, why would Jacob do that? Didn't Jacob know that everyone's going to find out, like right away? Seriously, if Isaac wants the family estate to go to Esau, it's going to go to Esau, whether or not Isaac was fooled for a few minutes. So what was Jacob thinking? Well, here's the answer. Jacob wanted more than anything in the world, even if he had manipulated the results, to hear his father say, I love and delight in you more than anything in this world. He just wanted to hear those words from the father's mouth even if he had to cheat to hear it, even if Isaac would take it all back. Jacob's not so jacked up now, is he? Every single one of us wants to hear that. Each and every one of us has got to get someone else to step into our lives and tell us that we're okay, that we're special, that we have value. And it's got to come from outside ourselves. We can't do it on our own. We can't bless ourselves in that way. It's not enough to tell it to yourself. Now, if you don't get it from your parents, you're going to get it from someone who loves you, like maybe your spouse. If you don't get it there, you're going to get it from maybe your professional success, from your career. We're going to work to get it from somewhere, whether or not you realize it or not. You can't give it to yourself. You can't bless yourself. 
You've got to have somebody somewhere looking at you saying, wow, you're great, and I love you. Everyone's got to have it. But See, now here's the problem. What if you have good parents? What if you have a great spouse? What if you've got a wonderful job? See, having failed Isaac, Jacob runs away to another country, and he begins to work for Laban. Laban has two daughters. One of them is Rachel, and Rachel is hot. And Jacob falls in love with her. And he says, look at this beautiful woman. If she was my wife, if I had her love, then everything will be okay. Then I'd have the blessing, and I'll be okay. But he gets her love, and everything's not okay. Because he puts her on a pedestal in such a way that not only is she loved more than anyone else in the family, not only are her children loved more than all the other children, it completely poisons the family. In fact, it's going to take the rest of the book of Genesis to work it all out. Jacob has been wrestling all of his life for blessing. He's been wrestling Isaac. He's been wrestling Esau. He wrestled with Laban to get Rachel. He's been wrestling and wrestling to get it from somebody. But up to now, it's evaded him. And now all of a sudden, he's wrestling someone new. Who is this guy that he's been wrestling for hours and hours and hours? As the night begins to fade away, three clues come in. They're kind of big clues as to whom... Jacob is wrestling with. The first clue, look at verse 25 if you still got it open. It says, He, the mysterious man, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. He simply touched him. He didn't punch him. It was no Chuck Norris style karate chop. He didn't yank on his leg. He just touched him. Jacob watches this guy reach out and simply touch. His whole leg is smashed for the rest of his life this simple touch. Have you ever had your sciatic nerve pinched? Yeah, lots of people have. It radiates down from your lower back, oftentimes just on one side, which almost makes it worse because then you're out of whack, you're not symmetrical. It goes down your leg many times, depending on how bad it is, all the way down your leg. It's really quite horrible. I have this problem every once in a while. Walking on the concrete can do that to you. Uh, Imagine that nerve being clipped, just snipped. But think about it. Where does all that pain, when the sciatic nerve is pinched, where does it radiate? It radiates everywhere. That's exactly where the nerve is necessary. When it's not pinched, where you felt the pain or can feel the pain, that's where the nerve is doing its job. So if we snip that nerve, all those parts of your leg, basically all of it, are now worthless. Totally toast. Your leg is crushed. Jacob must now realize there is massive power massive power. Second clue. The man says, "Uh, the light's coming up. I need to get going. And Jacob knows what this means. Check out in verse 30 at the end. It says, uh, for I have seen God face to face. Jacob knows that no human being can look into the face of God in the full light of day and live. Even Moses was shielded by the rock. He only got to catch a glimpse of God as he passed by. Jacob knows that his very life is in danger if the sun comes up. And the third clue we have, Jacob says, please tell me your name. What does the man say? He says, why is it that you ask my name? Let me paraphrase. Jacob, what's your name? God. You know my name. It's God. It's God. I think at this point, I think this is the exact point that Jacob is converted. Why? Because Jacob does exactly the most irrational thing possible. He realizes it's God, 
and the sun's about ready to come up. And a rational person would say, whoa, 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 I'm out of here. I don't want to die. Every rational, unredeemed person alive would want to get the heck out of there. They don't want to die. But instead, Jacob holds on tighter, tighter than he's ever held on in his life. And he says, not, you must let me go. But instead he says, I won't let you go. I won't let you go. Unless, unless what? Look at the story. All of the storylines of Jacob's life, they come slamming together at this very point. Look back over Jacob's life. He's realizing that the thing that he's wanted in every other relationship, the thing that I've looked for in my dad, Isaac, the thing I looked for in Rachel, I was wrong. I was wrong. You must bless me. And I don't care if I die. I want your blessing. Do you see what Jacob's saying? He's saying, I've been an idiot. The beauty I was looking for in Rachel's face, the approval I was looking for in my father's face, was right here, right here with you, God. All my life, I've just used the Lord as leverage to get this and this and this. I don't care if I die. I'm not letting you go until I get that thing that I've been looking for in every nook and cranny of my life. You want God to give, give you what you want, yet you don't want to give yourself to God. How do you know if you've had a life-changing encounter with God? You can believe in God all your life. You can even obey God all your life. But it's not until you realize that God is your life. You can believe in God and obey God because maybe God will give me that great family. Maybe God will give me that great career. And then when things don't go right, you get angry. You feel like you've been cheated. You haven't had a life-changing encounter with God yet. You're using God. You're not really seeking God. You haven't met God. When you come to realize that God is your life and there's nothing more important in the whole world than knowing Him and pleasing Him and delighting in Him and having a sense of His love in your heart, nothing, nothing, I don't care if I die. That's what Jacob's saying. I don't care how my career goes. I don't care if I get married. I don't care what the circumstances are. I've got to have this or nothing else. And until you feel that way, you really haven't met the real God yourself. You don't go to God for inspiration, information, for helping get over the problems in your life right now. Oh, whoa, I'm having a bad patch. I need some spiritual help, so I'm going to go to church. You need to go to Him for blessing. That's the blessing you've been going everywhere else for. You can't live without the blessing, and He's got it. That's what the Bible's saying. So first of all, you've got to meet Him alone. Secondly, you've got to meet Him for blessing. And third, you have to meet Him at the point of weakness. This was a wrestling match, right? So who won? Seriously, who won? It's a trick question. Both God and Jacob triumphed. Yet they both triumphed through weakness. If you don't get that, you're never going to find him. If you don't get that, you can't even understand the gospel. Here's why. First of all, yes, Jacob triumphed, but through losing, through weakness. What does that mean? All right. Back in high school, I wrestled for a short time. I tried out for the team, and I made it. I was in one of the heavyweight classes. You might say I'm big-boned. 
And yes, I did try on and wear that horrid one piece. I did some judo when I was a little bit younger, and I also earned my black belt in taekwondo. So I flopped around on the mat a little bit. In wrestling, every single muscle in your bone and body is being utilized against the efforts of your opponent. Those who've wrestled know what that means. It doesn't stop. It's like intense. From the very moment, for three minutes, it doesn't stop, and your opponent desperately wants to kick your butt. Three minutes of insanity. Very difficult, very exhausting. I cannot imagine how exhausting it would be to wrestle someone for several hours. Why? Why didn't God just show up at the beginning of the evening and say, Hey, Jacob, let me tell you the meaning of life. It could save us both a whole lot of trouble. Why did he jump him? Why did he wrestle with him? Why did he cripple him? It's only through agony. It's only through suffering. It's only through strain, through wrestling. It's only through the troubles that you're going to find out that you're actually not seeking the blessing from God, but from everything else and everyone else. And that's the reason why our lives are so broken. There's no other way. And yet, because of the weakness. See, when you're wrestling, your body, it feels like, like a rubber chicken. You know the hip. The hip is, is one of the most powerful parts of the wrestler's toolbox. It's, it's the powerful pivot that connects the power of the back and the power of the legs. It brings them together. It makes the whole thing complete. And then, boom! Jacob's strength is drained from him. Through incredible weakness, Jacob triumphs. God says to him, you have overcome. But how did he overcome? How did he win? By admitting that all the search missions for blessing in his life had been a mistake. Because at, the, at that moment, he said, I want you to bless me, God. You. What's, what, he, what's he, what he's really saying here is, I've been wrong about everything else. So he triumphed through repentance. He was repentant. He triumphed through admitting that everything else that he'd been doing was wrong. He won through losing. And that's the only way you're ever going to meet God. Now look at verse 29. God blessed him. It's tagged right at the tail end of the verse. God blessed him. A blessing was verbal. What did he say? Well, it's not really recorded right there for us. We don't really know. Maybe it was, you mean more to me than... I delight in you. I love you. We don't know, but we know he was blessed. Yet for the rest of his life, he limped. What an awesome example of what a real Christian is. Because if you know that you have the blessing of God, finally after years of seeking it everywhere else, you know he loves you. You know he loves you no matter what. You no matter what you've done. If you know that you have his blessing, it creates in you a kind of permanent, joyful weakness. Why? Well, you're so happy. You can be weak. You're so happy. You don't have to save face. You can admit that you're wrong. You don't have to come up with excuses. You can be weak. So first, Jacob triumphed through losing. But guess what? So did God. How in the world could anyone know that God loves you unconditionally? How could I be so sure of the blessing of God? 
Even when my wife blesses me, there's a limit to what I can do in that relationship. I could do any one of many horrible things and I'd lose that blessing. Or even little things. On my day off, if I spend the first half of the day catching up on Facebook, I could lose that blessing. How can I be sure that God blesses me? Well, here's a good question. Why did God bless Jacob? Why in the world did God bless Jacob? You can read all the stories about Jacob, and I encourage you to. It's very interesting. It's very different with Abraham. It's very different with Moses. They have good days, and they have bad days. Jacob, only bad days. Seriously, no one, no one wants to admire Jacob. Why in the world would God choose to bless someone who deserves so far less? Remember, I mentioned I had a stint in wrestling. When you're wrestling, you must be quite sure that your opponent is not heavier than you. You weigh in, actually, right in front of each other where the referee's right there. It's totally supervised. You want to be sure if this guy says he's 180 pounds, he's 180 pounds. Not 190, not 200, not 200. It doesn't matter what your skill is. You're toast. He's going to crush you. You've got to be the same weight. So how much does God weigh? How much does omnipotence weigh? We know that because of Jacob's life, he should have been crushed. He deserved it. Look at verse 25. God saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. What's that talking about? What are we talking about there? God was voluntarily weak. Keep up with me here. He was voluntarily weak so that Jacob could be blessed rather than destroyed. God made himself weak voluntarily in order to bring salvation to Jacob. Why did he do that? If Jacob deserved otherwise, why? How could a just God do that? I'll tell you why. In the pitch blackness of that night, God simulated weakness in order to bring salvation. But many years later, in the pitch darkness of Calvary, God literally became weak in order to bring salvation. In Jesus, God literally became weak. And not just that. But down on Jesus came the full weight of omnipotence and justice that not only Jacob deserves, but that you and I deserve. We deserve it for the ways that we've lived and the brokenness that we've caused in the lives of those around us. Isaiah 53, 5. You don't have to turn to it. I'll read it to you. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. With his stripes, we are healed. Jesus was crushed for us. You know what this means? When Jesus first started feeling the weight of omnipotence come down on him, and he knew how horrible it was going to be, he was realizing that he was to take the crushing weight that Jacob deserves, that you and I deserve. He could have said, I'm out of here. But he didn't. He held on. He didn't say, let me go, let me go. I don't want to die. He held on. Why? for us. If he'd have let go, we'd be lost. He held on. Look, Jacob held on at the risk of his life to get the blessing for himself. Jesus held on at the cost of his life to get the blessing for us. Galatians 3, Paul tells us that Jesus took our curse so that we could have his blessing. And blessing. Well, what does that mean? Well, throughout the New Testament, just like in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, where it says, He predestined us for adoption as sons 
through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to, pr- to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What does that mean? We become sons and daughters, children through adoption. Do you know what that means? God says to us what he said of Christ in Mark 1.11, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God says to you and to me, You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. You mean the world to me. You mean everything to me. Jesus can look at us and say, I lost the world for you. That's how you can know. That's how you can know that he blesses you unconditionally. Once you know that, no matter how life great is going, you're going to limp. You won't get cocky because you know it's because of his grace. And no matter how bad you're limping, when everything's going crappy, you can dance because you know it's going to pass because you'll have him forever. So, get alone with God. Get alone with God. Admit. Admit that you've been looking for blessing everywhere else, even if you say, I've gone to church all my life. Get alone with God and let it get personal. And then ask Him for blessing. Ask Him to bless you. In spite of your weakness, He usually meets us right there anyway, right there at that point of weakness. And He will. He really will. These are some of the reasons that we come to communion every week. We come saying that we've screwed up. We've looked to be blessed in all sorts of ways other than from God. We aren't looking to meet with Him personally, and we're sorry for that. We break the cracker, which represents Christ's body, which was broken for us, and we dip it in the wine of the grape juice, which represents His blood that was spilled for us, and understand that He died for us. He took the punishment that we deserve and gave us the Father's blessing. And we worship God through music. The band's going to come up and sing, and we're going to sing of His power, His power to defeat death. We sing of His love, and we rejoice in Him. And we sing to give God glory. If life is great right now, we sing to give Him some credit. If life couldn't be harder than anything right now, we sing out of joy, because no matter how bad you're limping, you'll dance. We also worship God through giving. There are offering boxes in the sides and in the back. And we give to God because we remember that in Jesus, God literally became weak. And this reminds us that he's given us so much. And we worship God through fellowship. So afterwards, head to the back. Talk to some people. Get to know someone. Talk about the blessing that God has given to you. He's given to us. And if you'd like to pray with someone, uh, there'll be a few folks who who are going to hang around in the back to pray with you. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for giving us clear understanding of where our blessing comes from. It humbles us. It makes us limp. We pray, God, that you would bless us, that you would come to us in our weakness, pick us up, and bless us. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.